from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It is Thursday, February 8th. I hope you're having a fantastic day, a fantastic weekend out there making a killing as you take over the world. As an entrepreneur, there's no career more exciting and more beneficial to society than being an entrepreneur. You are the people creating the jobs, making the economy grow and providing opportunities for everyone else, the other 90%. It is you 10% that support the world and let the other 90% have an existence. If it weren't for the 10, the other 90 wouldn't succeed. And so I'm so excited to introduce our guest today. Wayne Elliott is with us again, I think for the third time. Wayne is one of the owners of Strauss Naturals. They are our incredible radio sponsor. Uh, you may know that we are on some 69 stations around the country. You know, for a long time, we were on 68, and then we went to 69. And I feel weird about saying 69. I feel like people would think it's a joke or that I'm trying to be funny or something like that. What do you, I mean, so do you, do you kind of agree with me? Here I am with 69 stations right now. That's the real number. And we're trying to grow it. You know, last week we were at 68. Hopefully we will be at 72. I pitched two more stations yesterday. And so hopefully we'll be at 72 here really soon. And we can get away from the 69 number because I feel like it's a joke, but it's not, it's real. Anyway, Strauss Naturals has given us great support there for the radio programs that we do. If you haven't listened to those, you really need to. We have 90-second long, we call them minutes, even though they're 90 seconds, quick little bits of advice. Each week is a theme for the entire week. I think this week it's how to be more interesting. And each day we talk about a new way to be more interesting, which is something you would maybe want to do if you're an entrepreneur and so, or a business person or trying to get promoted or whatever. And so listen to those. They're on the website, click on the minutes feature, and they're always very useful. Thank you to Strauss for making them possible. Wayne, as I was talking about is the quintessential 10%. He is the guy who has gone out there and risked his money and his health and his reputation to provide great services for his employees who very happily work for him, no unions, and also great services to the environment. His job is to make the environment cleaner by cleaning up all of our junk that we waste, all of our cell phones that we throw away and all of the ships that we cast away. I personally just got rid of three 1000 foot ships last week. 
<laughs> anyway, an amazing career. And we will continue our conversation with Wayne here in just a minute. Before that, though, I want to make sure that everyone understands what we believe and what our thesis is and why Wayne is the quintessential example. We believe that anyone can be an entrepreneur if you're willing to work hard and if you can forget about the stereotypical definition of entrepreneurship, this idea that you have to be a risk taker who's creative and passionate, all of that is wrong. Risk is bad. Entrepreneurs try to reduce risk as much as possible. Wayne and I talk about how he has very risky investments, spends millions of dollars to move his, uh, to keep his business afloat. He has to buy these ships that then get torn apart. He invests millions of dollars to build or buy the ships and then to sell the raw materials that are pulled out of it. An incredible story financially but he minimizes risk every way that he can. And we're going to talk about that. But our whole you know, philosophy is that risk is bad and that we should try to avoid it. For us startup entrepreneurs, that means starting with less than $5,000. We don't need more than that to test our idea. If you do, you're probably doing something wrong. In terms of creativity, we think that's awesome for artists. But to be an entrepreneur, realize, please, that 92 93% of businesses are copies of existing businesses that almost always you can point to something where the idea came from and that you're probably stealing their idea. That's okay. That's good. That's what we promote. Don't wait on the sofa for a creativity lightning bolt. Go out there, find a business to copy, and just do it better than the other guys doing it. And finally, passion. We think passion is awesome, just absolutely awesome in the church, the synagogue, the mosque, the bedroom. But it's not necessarily a requirement to be an entrepreneur. If you want to be an entrepreneur, you just need to like the business more than working for the man, right? You can work and have a job or you can own the job. Which would you rather do? It doesn't mean you have to love the business. I love my family and taking them to Disney. I would rather be doing that than anything else. I don't love my work. I really like it. I'm passionate about making people better entrepreneurs. I am passionate about that. that. That's cool to me. I am more passionate about going to Disney with my kids. That's what's more important. And so anyway, there's our philosophy where we're coming from. So now let's hear where Wayne Elliott is coming from. We'll do that right after this. Bye, bye, bye. for Startups Radio hopes you will reach out to us if you have any questions or comments or if you need help with your business at any stage, from concepts to exit. Jim accepts all connections on LinkedIn. He tweets from at Entrepreneur Jim and he responds to emails at james.beach at att.net. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy the show. We are back ready to introduce Wayne Elliott. He is owner of businesses in the nutraceutical space. He owns a ship recycling business and also a lithium battery recycling business. Wayne Elliott, welcome back. How are you doing, my friend? Just great. Thanks, Jim. How are you? I am well. We had a really wide-ranging conversation last time, and we promised everyone that we would start off today talking about some financial topics. 
I know you wanted to talk a little bit about plant capacity. Why don't we start there? Well, let's let's. Uh, I was thinking, you know, waiting your your call, Jim, uh, about those very busy years I had from sixteen till about twenty two, where I did a variety of things, a bunch at the same time. Uh, one of the things I did, and there's a point to me telling you this. Uh, my da- <laughs> my dad got me a job in Tampico, Mexico. They had two sunken ships in the harbor. And uh, anyway, off off I went. And uh, uh, that was something else. There was no refrigeration in Tampico in those days. So uh, the food was shaky, and I didn't like it at all. No one spoke English. I had to draw pictures on the plate for the fellas. Great guys. There was 50 or 60 guys that worked there. They were, it was so primitive, Jim, they were cutting pieces steel mill size off the ships and then with ropes bringing them to the ground one by one and they would load the truck with a chain gang passing the plates up anyway a few months of that five i think i had enough i wasn't making any money and uh um had a chance to go and run a crane on an oil rig but when i found out you had to take a helicopter out and back i, I said <laughs> you no, can't I'm fly <laughs> No. So I was like the kid that lost his Christmas box. I was about to go from $400 a week, Jim, to $1,000 a week running a hammerhead crane on a drill rig. And that disappeared having coffee that morning when my friend who worked for the oil companies, a troubleshooter he was from Houston, uh, who said he'd get me the job. He, uh, he said, well, we better get going with, we've, the uh, helicopter departs at 7. I said, what are you talking about? Uh, we're not taking a boat? He said, no, Wayne, it's 40 miles offshore. I said, is that how they always go, like for their time off? Helico- yeah. I said, I can't go, Charlie. And that was that. But anyway, I came home from Mexico. They didn't want me to have left. I didn't even tell them I was going. I, I was so, I was sick. I got some kind of flu bug there or you know uh what do they call montezuma's revenge and it got into my chest and anyway i came home and they offered decent money for me to go back called my dad who was sitting in the farmhouse and i said i dad, i'm not going back for all the tea in china i mean I, I i'm just not going back there so my point is in business and i've told my boys this and any other young people that cared to ask never do anything just for the money uh, you might be very sorry that you did. You might ha- end up hating what you're doing. So never let that be the sole factor. Sometimes we're attracted to glittery things or things that look better, uh, Jim. But, uh, you know, that can't be the only reason that you do something. Of course, everybody needs money to eat and pay their bills. I don't mean that. But in business, uh, th- don't let that be the only factor is making money. You could be very unhappy while you're doing it. Wayne, how important to you is this whole idea of passion? And let me let me digress for just a second. I don't agree with this idea that you have to be passionate about what you do. I would rather be at Disney World with my kids than talking to you, Wayne. I really like you, but I'd rather yes. be at Disney with my kids. I really like my job, but I would rather be at Disney under any circumstance. Yeah. And so I, to me, there, 
they're not comparable. And so when people say that they love their job, I'm kind of concerned because you shouldn't love your job. You should really like it and love important stuff like family and God. And, you know, if you want to have a passion for solving world hunger, that's great, but that's not necessarily, uh, you know, a job. Um, how important no, does passion a, you, fit into the world for you, with you? Well, you hit a nail, you hit a nail square on the head of just an extremely important point that people have to realize, uh, in my opinion, going into business. Uh, for me, Jim, you're, you're, you know, you're absolutely right. And that's absolutely the way it should be ideally for every one of us. I had good times raising my kids. However, um, my dad taught us that business had to be first ahead of everything else. And uh, that's how you, you know, you support your family. I support my family from an early age. And um, so I, did I like the business? Yes. I, I, I you know, I love business, but uh, the, you go into business. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, small and family businesses. You go into business, some of the rest of your life can suffer, like going to Disney World with the kids or having a, something that you do every Saturday and Sunday uh, as a family. And, and uh, uh, those, those things may well suffer because you don't need as much passion. Well, you need some passion for your business as to enjoy what you're doing, but seem to have done better than me sooner. But you don't know how much money. They, they say most people owe a lot of money today. I never wanted to do that. And I always measure risk the, the, for things that we'd look at, that uh, if this fell apart, if this went off the tracks, if this didn't work, if it failed, could we still manage and carry on? And many times, of course, we couldn't have. It would have been too, too big a blow and, uh, uh, if, if something had gone wrong. And I, I can think of things as supplying a steel mill in my early days, and we ended up with another company, the, the number one suppliers, and they got into cash flow troubles. The steel mill did, and they retroactively backed pay, the payment terms of payment from 30 days to 60 days, and no notice, just did it, you know, and you're expecting that money, of course, and to run your business for the scrap metal we were selling them. And then they went retroactive to 90 days. And uh, at that point, I realized that, gee, if... If these guys don't make it, I don't think we'll make it. And so I slowly, over the months, sold less and backed out of that. Now, it turns out, had I been able to finance it, it would have been smart to stick with that mill because they were successful and sold out and it's still running today. But uh, you've got to measure that risk. And some people are prepared to roll all the marbles, risk all the marbles you have. Uh, you know, for example, signing your house as part of a guaranteed gym. And, and so... You know, you really got to, but most of my career, I'd say. Do you, would you do that, Wayne? Uh, uh, I fought the bank once. I I fought the bank once 40 years ago in court to not do that. And then I did it one other time when the price of scrap metal got so high that we were spending uh, a lot of money every day buying scrap metal. And uh, many of the scrap yards for the first time in history closed temporarily because of cash cash flow and uh we managed to keep going but and that was close and i'd never do it again jim because the 
I just made all the sales and confirmed everything 10 days before the market crashed, and uh, and it really crashed on the Ferris scrap market. So that risk, you know, uh, many people do it. You know, we're all optimistic when we start something, of course, or you wouldn't start it. But I would say that the greater half of my career was spent looking at the downside potential of things. At least, yeah, easily the greater half. Uh, it's easy. Good news is easy. If you think you're going to make $10 a ton or you're going to make $100 a unit, whatever you're selling, or a dollar per hot dog, uh, that's great. But when, when uh, uh, you know, when something goes, goes sideways and, uh, and you don't, uh, so studying the downside of things, I'd say is right up there at the, near the top, at least, or at the top with a couple of other things in, in terms of importance of running a business. And how with do every you do deal. that? Do you uh, divide a piece of paper in half and put pros and cons in columns and start adding I've it done up? That and I, what do you I've do? done that and attached a number between one and 10 uh, to each point, but... No, I, I really think of what's the downside. What if they failed? Uh, we're out 60 days worth of shipments. How much money is that? What's the upside to doing this? And uh, more times than not, I, I uh, didn't take... Uh, every day is a risk in business, Jim, but more times than not, I didn't take the big risks. And uh, sometimes, had I managed to, I'd have been better off, but... That's uh, that's Monday morning quarterbacking, you know. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful question, actually, Jim. Oh, my gosh. I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and, and I don't have a great answer. It, that's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question. And that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio. We are back again speaking with Wayne Elliott. Wayne, what's the biggest risk you have ever taken? Uh, well, that's a good question. It'd be like asking me, what's the biggest fight you've ever been in? Uh, I don't know. want to hear about your marriage, Wayne. We're not here to talk about your no, marriage. No, 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 not the marriage. I mean, over business, uh, General Motors Corporation, an international nickel company. I, I, for some reason, ended up in a few scuffles with big, deep, big guys, and they're always tough, of course. But, um, uh, I, I, I can't tell you off. Uh, you know, I can tell you about a whole bunch of losses, uh, with ships, uh, particularly, um, but risk, I don't know. It was, there's a risk every time we acquired a ship, Jim, because the scrap market changes every 30 days up, down, or stay the same. And <clears throat> oftentimes if we have a few vessels in the, in the yard, like we do now in a couple of sites, well, it's a year before some of that scrap gets shipped, so it's a hundred percent gamble. That's the uh, that's the dumb part about the business, and that's what I dislike about it most. All that hard work and risk, and uh, and it's a it's a gamble still. So I didn't understand this, Wayne. I assumed that the government put out a contract and said we have a 
thousand foot sub destroyer that needs to be demoed, who wants to do it? And then they pay you a million dollars to go do that. That doesn't sound like what's happening. What it sounds like is you bought the thing and hope that you can uh, explain how it really works. Well, there's two two sides to that, uh, Jim. Commercial work, like buying from one of the commercial fleets. We have uh, four vessels in our yard from commercial fleets here in in uh, Lake Erie, and in Nova Scotia, we have one commercial vessel and one government vessel. Now, you're quite correct. On the government vessels, um, there is most always a, a fee. In other words, we would get paid, or the winning bidder okay. would get paid. Um, to do the work and, and solve it. There's different reasons for that. Um, you have to go through a lot more, first of all, dealing with government vessels. And secondly, uh, the likes of old warships and Coast Guard boats and that tend to have PCBs aboard, uh, asbestos. So they're, they're more costly. Some of the ferries with the tremendous amounts of asbestos and and filler materials, uh, so they're more costly to, to to recycle. And the commercial vessels, for the most part, um, well, it goes between being paid something and paying for them, but the, the large full-size vessels are still at a point because they can go to Turkey and be well paid for, you see, across the Atlantic Ocean. They can tow them across the ocean, and they do. That's our main competition. <clears throat> so just adds to the risk because we have to pay more than we'd like to pay really um, for these ships. There's no wonder there's not many people in it, Jim. It's a uh, risk, big investment, machinery and equipment and location. Of course, you have to be on the water and uh, the market risk is, is, uh, is something. Uh, the guys in Turkey, they're guaranteed when they acquire a ship, the steel mills there, uh, set the price of the scrap metal based on that purchase price. So they're always okay. They're they're working for cost plus, so to speak. Uh, unless they, they're not good operators, but uh, with us, it's it's uh, all gamble. We can't even get 60-day orders from steel mills. What is the average cost of a boat ship that you have to buy? What's the average that you invest? That it it would it'd be too wild over the spectrum type of vessel size of vessel, but I would say this: the uh, the average value in today's market for a large ship, full size, as we call them, full seaway size, which is seven hundred and thirty feet long, seventy eight feet wide. That's the largest they could be. Um, that ship cut up, waste handles ship cut up into four foot by two foot pieces or smaller and delivered to the steel mill is, uh, let's see, it's about two and a half million dollars. And just random curiosity, 78 feet, is that because of the width of a canal somewhere, the Panama Canal, the Erie Canal? Uh, why Same thing, yes, feet. the St. Lawrence Seaway uh, canals. There's eight locks starting here in Port Colborne that go from Lake Erie up the 360 feet to Lake Ontario, or down, rather, sorry. We're in the upper lake, so they go down the eight locks each drop, about 35 feet. And the ships are then in Lake Ontario, and uh, the opposite, they get raised that much coming through the locks, coming into Lake Erie and the upper lakes. 
Um, so yes, that's the lock size themselves. That's the right. constraint. Yeah. And there's eight locks at, uh, or is it seven? I can't even remember at Montreal. Uh, and then you're in the St. Lawrence river. Once you depart the, the easternmost lock. I thought the Panama canal is 110 feet wide. Do you know, happen to know that? It, it's, uh, it is wide. It can take every size ship in the world, the super tankers, uh, Panamax size freighters. Well, I thought those were designed to be 108 so that they could fit with a foot on each side. Yeah, well, of course, you've got to fit to where your where your where your cargo is being hauled and the yeah. voyages you're taking. So, and they, they, there's a lock in the uh, upper in the Great Lakes uh, at the bottom of Lake Superior. There's a a thousand foot lock that's uh, 110 feet wide because there are 13 1,000 footers on the Great Lakes. They can't go into Lake Ontario or down the St. Lawrence. They're too big for the canal system, but they stay in the uh, in the upper lakes, the four lakes. So there's 13 of those that are a thousand feet long and 105 feet wide. All right. So how do you finance we, the two and a half million? Where do uh, is that all internally? You know, just uh, internal capital that you've accumulated over time that allows you to do that. And you said you've got you know several boats in your facility at a time. So you've probably got 15 or so million dollars sitting there getting scrapped right now am i right how do you finance right. all that, it, well we and we like to work on at least two if not three ships at a time because of the the waste work which is always first the oil washing the tanks degreasing and washing all the tanks fuel and oil tanks the asbestos um the non-metallic uh, furnishings, if you will, inside the uh, the superstructure, the accommodation sections. Uh, so it's all it's all labor to start before any any scrap metal has gotten to. Um, so that has to be financed, whatever the ship cost or cost to tow it to us. And what I did for many years, Jim, was and and so the other thing about financing, you you. It's best to try and be innovative. That's what I did. So I went to the brokers of the scrap metal, the big companies, and got advances from them against the scrap metal and guaranteed them the sale of the scrap metal. And they took that advance money off our payment each month when we got paid for the scrap that we delivered. And uh, if, I, if we had a bad month, well, they had a bad month. If you do that with a bank, they don't care that you had a bad month. They want your money. Right. Uh, uh, not much different from the mafia, I don't think. <laughs> you know, uh, banks are tough, and it's a, a common expression in businesses. They'll they'll uh, give you an umbrella when the sun is shining, and when it starts to rain, they want to take it back. So it's <laughs> you know, there's great. <laughs> There's great risk, really, especially for the small business or medium-sized business entrepreneur to have these uh, general security agreements, Jim, where you're, you've basically given bank charge or, or first position over all your assets, and even if you were to buy a new truck or machine or something tomorrow, it automatically gets added to that. And then on top of that, they often want personal signatures of the principals. So this is where your home can become involved, your savings account. Uh, you know, so we've, 
we've stayed for 40 years now. We've stayed away from bank money and just tried to be more innovative with things like that. And, uh, you know, we didn't, uh, we didn't live lavishly. We always have to leave enough money in your business to uh, run the business. So in Canada here, it's tough because you end up paying just an outrageous amount of income tax when you do that. The company will pay 26% on any profits that you leave in the business. And then if you're in the top tax rate here of making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, they, they charge 53% personal income tax. So you can actually be left with, with 20% of your profit. Um, and then you pay sales tax on, on everything and all the other taxes. So Canada isn't the most favorable place to, uh, to start a business, I would tell anyone. Uh, the United States is much better. The cities are allowed to to help you with things like reduce your taxes for a period of time. One steel mill that uh, set up in Kentucky, they got uh, a cut in their electricity rate. It was an electric furnace mill and a cut on their taxes. Well, here in Ontario, Canada, it's against the Municipalities Act to help a company in any way like that. So we've lost a lot of uh, potential to the United States that way. But, um, yeah, finance is just a huge, huge part of it, as you know, Jim. And, and as you grow, uh, that's where some of this capacity comes in. You know, whatever. If you're selling hot dogs or you're hauling scrap metal or garbage or anything in between, as your business grows, and then, for example, you need that second truck, well, you've just increased your overhead. If you lease the truck or buy it on time, you, you know you have the monthly payments, you have the maintenance, you have the licensing, the insurance. You've just increased your overhead. So even though you need it, because maybe your truck's doing five calls a day and you have six calls a day to do, you have to build the business until that second truck is actually paying for itself and then hopefully making a profit. So growth is, is very difficult and... Uh, uh, I think especially so here in Canada with the way the tax system is, um, there's, there's just no, yeah, there's, there's no good way. <laughs> there's no good way out. You, hence, you know, most people borrow, obviously. Wayne, I had a business 25 years ago and I owed the bank $3 million or something like that. For a seasonal wow. business. It was a seasonal business. And one day the banker called and said, I'm calling your loan. I want, I, I want you to repay all of it. And it was a very short conversation. And about a month later, I asked why. And he said, I just wanted to see if you could repay it. I'm like, you're wow. experimenting. And the answer is, yeah. It happened, just- it happened to me in 81. It happened to me in 81 with... Uh- I had to go to court, get an injunction against the bank. It was in like 1981, something like that, where it was very difficult to change banks or get financing, hard to get insurance uh, on uh, equipment and so forth. And uh, the, the judge ordered the bank to stay our banker. And then about a year later, we, we got rid of them. But uh, yeah, they can, you know, anybody who has security over you or your belongings, um, you know, you're at you're at some risk. They told me later this bank, Canadian Bank, did that the bank was really mismanaged at that time. They felt as though they had to collect a bunch of loans, but didn't hire more people to analyze properly. 
And this bank superintendent said to me, it was like we went duck hunting with our rifles pointed in the air, but we were looking at the water. And uh, <laughs> so he said, we called many people's loans we shouldn't have, had never missed a payment. And we left a lot of people in business that we should have called their loans. And uh, so this is what I mean. That's And that sounds crazy, Jim, but this stuff happens. So uh, whenever other humans are involved or other businesses, they often don't have mutual interest with you. You know, their interests are different than yours. So, and that's where trouble starts when there's a, a conflict of interest. All right, the wait. deals I had with the steel mills, there was no conflict of interest because they wanted the metal. Uh, so it just worked out. As I say, if I had a, a slower month, they had a slower month. Yeah, that was a good deal. We got to talk about plant capacity. We're about to run out of time. Teach us some about plant capacity and how you calculate that. Uh, is it just how many locks you got open? How many dry stocks? Tell us about your thoughts. Well, let's start at the let's start at the ground. And someone wants to start a business, a one man, a one horse show, just themselves, hair cutter, bookkeeper, whatever they are, they're going to do it out of their home. Uh, their plant capacity is whatever number of hours per week they're willing to work. Uh, whether they need a vacation, whether they're going to work weekends, whether they'll work extra when it gets extra busy at tax time, or whatever the case may be. But that's their plant capacity. And as soon as you take on enough business, whether you're a one-horse business like that or a, a larger business, when you take on more business, you have to, uh, you have to both finance that business and be capable of managing it and satisfying your customers in a timely manner. They're not going to wait just because you've only got one truck. Uh, so um, managing your plant capacity and realizing what it is, so it, it, what you have to do, and this is <clears throat> one of the hardest things, <clears throat> excuse me, from my experience, one of the hardest things was to plan for success. Because to plan for success, you need to be ready. You need to fix that old crane. You need to get that other truck on the road. You need to, whatever it is you need to do, get the other hot dog cart ready to go. Um, and it costs money. It always costs money. That's the difficult part, Jim, because you, you may not have the contract yet. You're fairly confident you're going to get it, but you can't wait until you get it to fix your equipment up and be ready to go. So we have to plan for success, and that always costs money, time, and effort. But it's the only way because if you if you are successful, it's happened many times in business where the folks either couldn't finance their success, finance the extra business, the the, the cash flow, or uh, or couldn't actually manage the the production or service of whatever they're providing to start with. So it's really important to keep a, a finger on the pulse of your plant capacity, and when you're about to reach it because you'll need to do something, hire another person, get another truck, whatever the case may be. And it's, it's very difficult because the money isn't always there to do that, Jim. So it's, it's a real, uh, it's a timing thing and it's, uh, there's just a lot involved, uh, 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 to these important items. And for you adding capacity could mean tens of millions of dollars, right? Well, it was never that much, but certainly, you know, a million dollars or more for a machine, uh, machines, you know, we, 
uh, my guys roll ships out of the water whole now. It's uh, just better environmentally. It's better that we don't worry about storms or ship breaking loose or anything like that. So they roll them right out of the water on high dry ground. And uh, those giant rubber bags and the chain pulling equipment, uh, very expensive. And the hydraulic equipment you need to power that. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a big investment. And uh, you have to study that as well when you're looking at maybe automating somewhat or getting a more high production, more productive machine can do more units, more capsules, whatever it is a day. You've got to do all the arithmetic. And again, if you didn't, you've got to know what your cost is and you've got to know where you need to be before you start to make a profit on that investment until it starts to pay for itself. Uh, otherwise, and you know, most of us have made some bad moves on things that never did pay for themselves. And the longer you ignore it, you've just turned a bad decision into a policy of uh, costing you money or effort or both. Well said. Wayne, we need to wrap it up for this week. I appreciate you spending some time with us today. Some great lessons. I love your thoughts on never just take something for the money and passion. Great conversation about banks. Uh, I thank God I don't live in Canada and have your taxes. And I think you should just go ahead and move to America. We'll talk about that next time and appreciate your time this week. Well, thank you, Jen. It's my pleasure as always. We'll talk again next week. Take care. You bet. And we'll be back tomorrow with another great School for Startups radio. Bye now. Yeah.